Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a big thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at John chapter 6 and this episode is entitled The Economic Ethics of Miracles. We are currently studying the Gospel of John. And in the month of February, we are going to be connecting the stories that are in the book of John to stories that are found within Black history. Now, during Black History Month, we first and foremost celebrate Black achievement and culture during the month of February. Not only that, but Black history is American history. And when you look at American history closely and begin to speak of black history, we must recognize that white supremacy is intertwined within the story of American history. You cannot tell the story of American history without running into white supremacy and speaking of the evils of this horrific sin. Now, I have to say to my white brothers and sisters that this can be hard to talk about and hard to hear. I have to tell you that I know what this feeling is like because for the majority of my life, I resented Black History Month because I felt like a villain. So what I wish someone would have told me is that the reason that white Americans study Black History Month is to help us move from denying racism to lamenting racism. And when we talk about lamenting racism, we're talking about grieving racism. We're talking about feeling the societal effects of racism. We're talking about the injustice of racism and being willing to call it out and change who we are personally and who we are nationally. So if you feel defensive at any point during this month, may I encourage you to recognize that sensation within you and move from denying racism to lamenting racism. And when I moved from denying racism to lamenting racism, I found that if we can recognize racism in our history, then we will be much better at recognizing racism in the present. So we study black history, to celebrate black achievement and culture, and to recognize where racism still exists in our present reality today. So with that in mind, I'd like to tell you about what I was taught about black history when I was in school. When I was in the eighth grade, I have this vivid memory of seeing a black and white photograph of Martin Luther King Jr. standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and delivering his I Have a Dream speech. The history textbook told me that there were these unjust Jim Crow laws that encouraged segregation, and Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Washington to bring an end to Jim Crow in 1963. Then in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, and while it didn't explicitly say this, the history textbook implied that that was the end of racism. The history textbook went on to tell us that we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day every year in America to celebrate the progress and the equality of all in America. Which brings us to Martin Luther King Jr. Day in America in 2020. Just this past month, 
the FBI tweeted out on MLK Day these words. Today, the FBI honors the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. A quote from Dr. King is etched in stone at the FBI Academy's Reflection Garden in Quantico as a reminder to all students and FBI employees. And this quote is from Martin Luther King when he says, The time is always right to do what is right. Now, just a few years ago, I would have seen the FBI tweet these words out and thought to myself, this is great. The FBI recognizes that Martin Luther King Jr. is a great man and that it is working to end the discrimination that happens in America today. But after I read the works of Martin Luther King Jr., and heard the stories and saw films and became more familiar of what the truth was between the relationship of the FBI and Martin Luther King Jr., I have come to the conclusion, and I think that you will agree, that this tweet is one of the most ridiculous things the internet has ever produced. Now, I don't say those words lightly. I mean, the internet's produced a lot of ridiculous things. Just this past week, I saw somebody who posted a video to YouTube, which was a cover of the song Billie Jean using only doorstops as the instruments. This tweet, though, is more ridiculous than that. Because the FBI spied on Martin Luther King Jr. for years. Yes, spied on its own American citizen. This was all the request of the director of the FBI, a man named J. Edgar Hoover, who did not like Martin Luther King Jr. Now, he started to spy on MLK specifically because he was worried that he was a threat to national security. He looked at Martin Luther King Jr.'s associates and said, some of those are communists. We need to spy on Martin Luther King and his associates in order to see if we can protect democracy. And while this is, to say the least, morally questionable behavior on the part of the FBI, it becomes downright immoral the minute we recognize that every time MLK had some public recognition of success, the FBI ramped up its spying efforts against Martin Luther King. For instance, shortly after MLK gave his speech, I Have a Dream, the FBI stopped focusing so much on his associates as a threat to national security and focused almost exclusively on Martin Luther King Jr. himself. They shortly after that speech ramped up their spying efforts on Martin Luther King and his personal life. The very next year in 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And in what can only be described as a fit of jealousy, J. Edgar Hoover, on November 18, 1964, went before a press conference and told the world and America that Martin Luther King Jr. is, quotes, the most notorious liar in the country. A few days later, Martin Luther King Jr. received an anonymous letter threatening him and telling him that unless he committed suicide, this anonymous author would release tapes to the public, telling Mar the world of Martin Luther King Jr.'s adulterous affairs. Martin Luther King Jr. read this blackmailing letter and immediately said to his colleagues, the FBI sent this to me. While this seems like a crazy conspiracy theory, it was proved shortly after his death that a deputy who reported directly to J. Edgar Hoover 
did in fact compose this letter, blackmailing Martin Luther King Jr. with the surveillance that the country had collected in an effort of, quotes, national security. So when the FBI tweets out that the time is always right to do what is right and that they are honoring Martin Luther King Jr., everybody's reaction should be, this is ridiculous. But that's not our reaction because we weren't taught any of this in school, were we? We were told that it would be too controversial. So because of this lack of education, the FBI tweets out that they've always loved Martin Luther King Jr. And the majority of Americans respond by saying, oh, the FBI is a real moral organization. In fact, the overwhelming majority of people I know who quote Martin Luther King Jr. rarely have any understanding, if any at all, of who he actually was. For instance, if you say out loud, I don't like it when people bring politics to the pulpit, then you should never quote Martin Luther King Jr. ever because almost all of his sermons had some political dimension to what he was talking about. But I wasn't taught in school that he preached about politics from the pulpit. Not only that, but I know several people who think it's great that our country celebrates Martin Luther King Jr. Day every year. This, in their minds, is a recognition of the entire country saying Martin Luther King Jr. has, in fact, made our country better. But very few people of those understand that in Mississippi and in Alabama, they don't celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day there. Instead, they both celebrate Robert E. Lee and Martin Luther King Jr. on the same day. But I was never taught any of that in school. Not only that, but while people celebrate the Civil Rights Act of 1964, very few Americans recognize that Selma and the racially motivated police brutality that occurred there is what led to the Civil Rights Act being passed. More so than Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. This racially motivated police brutality is part of our history. And I think that Americans have such a hard time believing that racially motivated police brutality exists today because we don't study it in our schools and accept it as part of our history. And even when we teach our kids and ourselves about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the overwhelming majority of pictures I see from that day are in black and white, even though color photography definitely existed. And I think history textbook editors choose black and white photographs to project this idea that this happened a long time ago, when in reality, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated only 15 years before I was born. And when I look at the color photographs of August 28, 1963, with Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. 
I think about how much this sermon has been misunderstood by people who are alive today. And when I listen to I Have a Dream in 2020, I get this sense that his words and that gathering is exactly what John chapter 6 is all about. So we will return to this speech at the end of this episode. But first, I'd like to dive into John chapter 6 to tell you what this story is about. A quick review about the Gospel of John. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born, and sometime around the year 30, Jesus died. Now, some say he rose from the dead. And one of those who said that he rose from the dead was a man named Mark. Sometime around the year 70 to 75, Mark sat down to write a biography of Jesus, which would eventually become Mark's gospel. Now, this is the earliest account of the life of Jesus that we have with us today. 10 to 20 years after Mark wrote his gospel, Matthew and Luke sat down independently of each other, but both with Mark's gospel and wrote their own biographies of the life of Jesus. These biographies became the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke. 10 to 20 years after Matthew and Luke wrote their gospel, John sat down to write his gospel. And when he looks at all that had happened since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he looked at the accounts that were out there about Jesus and thought to himself, you know what this story needs? It needs some poetry. For that reason, the Gospel of John is more concerned with allegories and metaphors than historical accuracy. That is why during this series, we are leaning more into the symbolism of the stories rather than the nitty-gritty details. Personally, I have found the Gospel of John to be much more meaningful and significant in my own life when I trust it or see it as an allegory or metaphor rather than historically accurate. Now, when I read the other three Gospels, I treat them very differently, but this has brought the Gospel of John to life for me. Now, before we jump into the story in John chapter 6, one other thing that you need to know is that Jesus lived in first century Palestine as an oppressed member of the Roman Empire. Jesus was a poor peasant from Nazareth, which was a poor town. And I've seen estimates as low as 70% and as high as 90% of Jesus's income was most likely taxed away from him. Today in 2020, we Americans complain when 30% of our income is taxed away from us. Imagine living in an era and an empire that would tax you for 90% of your income. So we turn to John chapter 6 to read about a poor peasant speaking to other people who have been taxed out of their mind in a story that is the fourth out of seven miracles in John's gospel. We read, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. 
Before we go any further, though, we have to discuss the Passover for the Jewish people. The Passover was a religious festival that happened every year to commemorate God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of enslavement, with a mighty and miraculous hand. This was a big deal for people who were oppressed by a Roman Empire. They had this sense that God would come back at any moment and liberate them from the Romans. Not only that, but John's gospel is the only gospel to mention the Passover three different times. The first time is when Jesus clears the temple. And it's almost like John is telling the reader, look, Jesus came to this earth to liberate you from the oppression of organized religion. The second time is this story, which we'll talk about more in a moment. And the third time is at the end of John's gospel when Jesus is crucified and then, according to John, risen from the dead during the Passover celebration. It's almost like John wants you to see that the life of Jesus will provide you liberation from death. So here we are at the second time that John mentions the Passover. And it's important that when you hear these words that you think to yourself, oh, the people who heard this story were thinking liberation is in the air. Whatever Jesus is about to do provides a kind of liberation that is needed from our oppression. We then return to the story in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6, Jesus said this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered Jesus, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. As we read this today, it's almost like Philip is saying, Jesus, feeding everyone here is a nice thought, but who's going to pay for it? Like, give me your ideals, Jesus, that's fine, but let's talk about logistics. Who's going to pay for all this food? Six months' wages wouldn't buy all of these people enough bread, even for them just to have a little piece. In verse 8, we read about another disciple, Andrew, who then answers Jesus' question. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they, Jesus, among so many people? It's almost like Andrew is telling us today, we have some food, but it's not nearly enough food. So Jesus asks his disciples, where can we get something to eat for all of these people? Philip says, we can't pay for that. And Andrew says, there's not enough food for people to eat. In verse 10, Jesus responds to this. Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place. So they sat down about 5,000 in all. Now it's important for us to remember that most people living during this era would only count the men. So while the number is 5,000 in verse 10, it more likely is 10,000 people total. Verse 11, we read, Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
When they were satisfied, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So the disciples gathered them up. And from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. In response to this story, most Christians I know say something like, I've definitely heard this story before. This is not one of those underground stories of the Bible that you tell people and Christians respond by saying, what? That's great. (laughs) Instead, the opposite reaction is true where most Christians respond by saying, yeah, I've heard that story when I was a little kid and I've heard it ever since then. And if you can get Christians to be candid with you, they will eventually get to the question, which is, I mean, it's nice, but so what? Why does it matter whether Jesus fed 10,000 people or not? Now, the church responds to this question of so what by saying, well, you need to believe it because these miracles and these signs are meant to establish the authority of Jesus and show that he is not just another ordinary man. In fact, his ability to perform these miracles to bend the laws of physics asserts his supremacy above humanity. And so you either believe that this story happened or you didn't. And if you didn't believe this story happened, then you can't be part of the Christian tradition because you don't believe in the authority, the divinity of Jesus. So the church takes this story and turns it back towards its congregations and asks, do you believe that Jesus manipulated the laws of physics to multiply bread and fish in an effort to establish his heavenly authority? Now, I personally believe that if John heard us asking this question after him telling us this story, he would respond by saying, ugh. <laughs> I think that that's true because when you look at the thesis of John's gospel, it is one of the most beautiful thesis statements of any of the books of the Bible. It's found in verse 14 of chapter 1 when he's trying to describe what it means for Jesus Christ to be born. He says these words, and the word became flesh and lived among us. This is a gospel of transformation where you take the rules of religion, the scripture of religion, the ideas and gatherings of religion, and you place it into a body, and it becomes something more than the sum of its parts. In other words, this gospel is a story of transformation into something better. The gospel of John, at its core, is an invitation to transformation for its readers. So anytime you read one of these stories that you may have heard before, a question that's good to ask is, what is John's invitation to change for me in this story? And I think that once we ask that question about Jesus feeding this mass of people, we can find a life-changing transformation at the core of this story. So let's go back to this story and ask, what actually happened here? Jesus sees a throng of people. He turns to his disciples and says, we should feed all these people. Where can we get food to feed all these people? 
Philip responds by saying, we don't have enough money to help these people. Andrew says, we have some food for us, but not enough food for them. Jesus listens to both of their answers and decides to ignore them. And it's here that most Christians say that Jesus then took the bread and the fish and multiplied it and gave everyone a copious amount of food. But is that actually what happens here? Because when we read the text very carefully, we realize that John never mentions that Jesus multiplied any food. Read with me John chapter 6, verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. John never mentions that Jesus multiplied the food. Not only that, but when you look closely at verse 13, John says at the end, there are still only fragments from the five barley loaves. And these fragments somehow filled 12 baskets. Now, I have heard a couple ideas of how Jesus fed so many as much as they wanted without multiplying the bread and the fish. One idea is that Jesus began to share what little he had and others were so moved by his act of generosity that they began to share what they had, and that's where the surplus of food showed up. Now, most Christians I know would hear me say something like this and then say, wait, 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 wait. Did Jesus literally multiply fish and bread to feed 10,000 people, Craig? Yes or no? I need to know where you stand. To which I would say, who cares? Who cares? Because I don't think that's the greatest miracle that happens in this story. Here you have Philip telling Jesus, we don't have enough money to help others. Andrew tells Jesus, we don't have enough food for them. And Jesus hears both of these objections and says, actually, we have enough. This story is about 10,000 people who are certain that there is not enough, all of a sudden becoming aware that there is plenty for everyone. My brothers and sisters, this is a miracle. Now, if you don't feel like this is a miracle, imagine what would happen tomorrow if all of our government leaders came out in a press conference and said, guys, we are the richest country on earth. We all of a sudden have realized that there is enough resources to take care of everyone here in America. You would look at me and you say, this is a miracle. <laughs> because when people move from the certainty that there is not enough to becoming aware that there is plenty for everyone, that's the miraculous nature of the story 
of John chapter 6. In this story, Jesus invites all of us to move from the perspective of scarcity to the joy of abundance. Now, when I say the word abundance, all sorts of things go off in our heads. So I need to define what abundance is. Abundance is often tied to generosity. And there's this myth out there that you have to be rich in order to be generous. If you believe in this myth, I would ask you the question, who is the most generous person in this story in John chapter 6? The answer for me is found in verse 9 when Andrew points to a boy and says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. There is a boy. There's this idea out there that you have to be old to be generous. And yet the most generous person in a crowd of 10,000 is a young boy. Not only that, but he has five barley loaves and two fish. Barley loaves were the cheapest bread in Jesus's society. So here you have somebody who doesn't have much, but yet he finds a way to be generous in spite of that. Generosity is not tied to wealth. Rather, generosity is tied to the idea and the viewpoint that I have enough and I can share. If you are looking for a personal application in this story, I think you need to look at this boy who does not have much, but he sees it as more than enough. In this story, this boy embodies what Jesus is trying to get at when Jesus invites us to move from scarcity to abundance. One other thing that I need to clarify about abundance is that abundance is often tied to greed. Our climate, our planet is in dire need of help. And the reason we're in this disastrous state is because there is this sense among corporations that we can harvest as much from the earth as we need in order to turn a profit. That's not what it means to move from scarcity to abundance. The great Richard Rohr once said, a saint always knows that there is more than enough for our need, but never enough for our greed. When we move from a perspective of scarcity to one of abundance, it is a recognition that there is more than enough for our need and is the opposite of what it means to be greedy. In this story, Jesus invites you and I to transform and to change from people who see the world as a scarce place to a place of abundance. I find this to be a miracle. And nearly 2,000 years later, in Washington, D.C., Martin Luther King attempted the same miracle in his sermon, I Have a Dream. What I was never taught in school was that the inspiration behind this speech was the fact that it was 1963, 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 when Abraham Lincoln outlawed slavery. There was a growing unrest in the African-American community 
because they felt very strongly that while they were declared free, the government still did not see them as free. This was a protest that over 100 years, the government, the American government, had failed to see free Americans as free Americans. Not only that, but history textbooks often leave out the title of the march that Martin Luther King spoke at and gave his famous sermon. This was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. This march had a massive economic and political dimension behind it that said we need to be taken care of and be treated as equals. We want jobs. We want fair paying jobs. And we see really rich white men at the top telling us that there's not enough to go around and that we can't be taken care of. But we think there's enough. Martin Luther King Jr. embodied this idea in the opening paragraph of his speech, I Have a Dream. He speaks about the Emancipation Proclamation and says, 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. He then went on to say, we have come to Washington to cash a check that was written in the Constitution. And while we try to cash this check here in Washington, D.C., powerful people tell us that this check has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. This sermon calls out powerful white men and says, quit hoarding all the resources. There is enough for all of us. I Have a Dream demanded that America move from a position of scarcity to a posture of abundance. This sermon was given nearly 57 years ago. And I have to ask you, do you believe America actually changed because of this sermon? Because while there are some moments where we have moved from a position of scarcity to abundance, I would argue that we've just gone further down the trail of scarcity. This happens anytime we discuss immigration reform. As soon as we bring up the topic of immigration reform, people in power will quickly say there's not enough jobs, there's not enough food, there's not enough money for us to take these people on. And to me, they sound exactly like St. Philip and St. Andrew telling Jesus, we just don't have enough to help these people. Now, if this sounds like I'm advocating for us to just open the borders, I will tell you that you are wrong. What I am asking for all of us to do is that whenever we discuss immigration reform, which our immigration system needs to be reformed, right? Whenever we discuss it, Christians should be the ones who discuss it from a position of abundance rather than scarcity. And anytime we start talking about immigration and saying there's just not enough, that is the minute we should remember the story of John chapter 6 and remember Jesus' invitation to move from scarcity 
to abundance. Here in Black History Month, our government throughout our history has told African Americans that there is not enough for them. Christians should be outraged. We should be outraged because this goes against the ways of Jesus. Christians should always be the ones who stand up and say, look at how much we have. Surely there is a way for us to find enough for everyone. My brothers and sisters, while we have talked about some big political ideas and some horrific evils of racism, may we remember that this is ultimately a personal invitation from Jesus. And may we follow Jesus and trust that there is more than enough. May we follow Jesus and see the abundance of our reality. And may we see that all of this existence is rooted in grace. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.